Welcome to Season 2 of the Shopstool Podcast, a podcast for woodworkers and the maker community in general. With Joey Chalk from King Post Timberworks, Brian Cush from Sawdust Bureau, and Robin Lewis from Robin Lewis Makes. Hi everyone, I hope you're all very well. This is Episode 23, Season 2 of the Shopstool Podcast. As always, I want to start by introducing my... Actually, no, we don't. We've only got one co-host, unfortunately, today. Um, unfortunately, Joey couldn't make the show today, but that's all right. I'm sure Brian can fill both those shoes. Brian, how are you today? Oh, there are big shoes to fill. Um, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good, Robin. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Thanks. Uh, my name is Robin Lewis. Welcome to the show, everyone. So today we've got a, another guest. We are talking with a knife maker, a skill that we haven't had on the show before. He's based in Melbourne, and he has, honestly, the cleanest Instagram feed you have ever seen. Um, there's a quote on the website that says, to stay true to ideals of handmade, all our products are sole authorship, which is something that I really want to get into. It's a, a detail that I'm really interested in. He's the, or sorry, he's the founder of Cutthroat Knives. Welcome to the show, Aidan McKinnon. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Thank As you. I say, it's the first the first knife maker we had we've had. So we are, um, I guess, interested, and I'm just very keen to to hear um, what makes a knife maker. We were sort of we were getting into this a little bit before the we we started recording. So hopefully we can pick up on that. But you know the what really makes a knife maker. But I think a good place to start your origin story. How did you go from you know, I guess making your first knife to now having a very successful business. Uh, yeah, so I uh, I used to work in a completely different field. I trained in international aid and development. I worked overseas in Geneva and New York and then Malaysia. Uh, and I came back to Australia um, right when Tony Abbott, who was a, a right-wing uh, politician, came into power and he defunded uh, pretty much all the sectors that I could have found a job in. And and so I was I was looking for work and at the same time just feeling incredibly low because I couldn't find work. And so I was making stuff with my hands or cooking a lot uh, just, to, just to fill the time because, you know, there is literally a limit to how many job applications you can send out every single week. Uh, and at one point... Uh, I had my name down with another knife maker that I was like, hey, look, I'm cooking a lot. I'm going to get a knife made by this other guy. Uh, and my parents were like, oh, you're getting a handmade knife. We, f- we ran into this, this other knife maker um, in Ballarat, a guy called Adam Parker. Uh, and he runs classes. Do you want to learn how to make a knife? And I went out uh, with Adam Parker uh, to, his, to his shed. And I was like, Adam, you know, I want to make a chef's knife. Uh, and Adam was like, we're not going to make a chef's knife. We're going to make a hunting knife. Uh, and so we made a hunting knife together and I don't hunt. I don't care about hunting. I don't have anything against hunting. It's just not my thing, but the process of making something immediately connected with me. And within six months, I'd bought everything that I needed to start making. And then I spent six months in a shared maker space, uh, doing nothing else but making, I was there 11 hours a day, uh, just pushing myself, trying to make knives, trying to learn this kind of stuff. And back when I was starting, you know, to buy material, you would go onto a website, download a PDF from a gas company's website where the guy who was working at that gas company was also importing steel and selling wow. the steel to other knife makers. Like, there, wow. just, there just was nothing. <laughs> there was no websites to go, I'm going to buy knife steel and I'm going to buy handle material and so on. It was yeah, like, knifemakers.com. you yeah. <laughs> need to, like, find all of the intrinsic parts of this and they're all separate and they're all in different places and none of it is a specific website. All of that's changed, which is fantastic. I, I love it that it, it's changed because I think it makes better knife makers. Uh, I think I'm, I'm, a, I'm not, I'm against gatekeeping within communi- communities. You know, the more difficult it is, doesn't mean it makes you a better knife maker. It means that it, it makes the community a smaller community and makes the community worse knife makers as a, as a community. Um, so I'm, 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 
I'm so in support of, of that shift that's happened. Um, but launched and then within three months got some big write-ups and, and, you know, in the beginning, I think it's probably the same as you guys. You, you launched this crazy idea of going, I'm going to be a knife maker. And you're like, that, it, it is an insane idea to think of. These days, there are more knife makers doing it. But back then, there was, you know, you typed in Handmade Knives Australia when I launched and US websites came up mm. before Australian websites. And so to launch this, I was like, look, I'll just do it, but I'll be looking for other work on the side. And when that other mm. work comes in, I'll just drop the knife making. And, and then it, it switched over and, and very quickly I was like, oh, this, this can actually be my income. This can actually be my living. Can I ask, Aidan, that, that timeline, so you mentioned Tony Abbott, but for people that don't know their uh, right-wing Australian history, how long has yeah. that period been since you first made that, that hunting knife? It's been, the business is a little over five years old. So it was... Uh, five years old in April uh, of yep. this year, so 2020. Yep. Um, and then it was about six six to eight months before that that yep. I was just kind of... Learning process. Learning from whoever yeah. I could. Uh, so I did uh, a class with Adam Parker and another class with uh, Thawa Valley Forge. Both of them kind of have their different kind of focuses. But that was, that was the only way to learn at that time. Um, and, you'd, you know, there there was a couple of guys putting stuff out on YouTube, but there was, there was also that problem of, there was so much information. And when you're first starting out, it's just white noise and you don't know how to tell the difference between the guy who's talking truth and the guy who's talking at his ass. Mm. Um, and unfortunately that, that became, you know, that was just trial and error of going, Oh, I'll, I'll follow what this person's saying. And for three or four months, you're following what that person's saying, not knowing that what that person's saying has got no bearing on reality. It's total garbage, yeah. Yeah, it's total garbage. (laughs) They gave you the wrong advice. They got the wrong advice before them. And you were making bad product because of it. Um, And and I think what's interesting, and and it might be the same uh, with some furniture, is that with a knife, it can look like a knife, but it it can also not perform like a knife. So you can make an object that looks exactly it can photograph it, fine, but yeah, it can photograph yeah, when it, fine. When it's in your but hand, you're like, you it can't, it. it can't cut to save its life or the heat treatment is better. Like there's all these hidden elements to what makes a great knife. Um, so the heat treatment is, you know, the heart and soul of good knife making, but you can totally half ass that and, and make something that looks fine, but just performs terribly. And, and no one would know until it's in that person's hands. Yeah. Um, Can you tell us thing- the, the initial steps? That, so when you established yourself as a business, did you have a, a load of, a, like a backlog of orders of products that you had made for friends and family? So you had photographed them and stuck them up on a website and got orders or did you go through the kind of design markety exhibition route or did you specifically target people with ads or how did you get those first clients? Uh, I did I did a lot of the design markets in the beginning. I think mm. there's something really valuable. You know, you, friends and family are never going to give you the feedback that you need. Mm. And, and even if Very you go, true. you know, people are like, oh, you should make a knife and give it to a chef. Tell you what, chefs actually don't know that much about, about knives. And I, I tell you what, mm. if you give them a free knife, they're not about to rag on you if you give them a free product. Uh, the best place is to go out into public and have people pick up your product and say, this is good or this is bad. Because uh, they have no... There's nothing in it for them to, mm. to not hold back. Um, and... And then the other part of it is take your product to, to someone who's, who's very knowledgeable and, and say, you know, go to a, in, in the case of knife making, um, you would find somebody who's a master smith and uh, you go to them and say, please give me feedback on this. And again, they're going, look, I'm going to give you feedback on the aesthetics of what you're doing. Uh, and here's feedback on that. And I... I also brought in uh, Sean McIntyre, who's uh, one of Australia's only mastersmiths, and I got him to come in for a couple of days. I paid him to come in for a couple of days and to go through my processes and give me oh, feedback wow. 
on each process about what I was doing right and what I was doing wrong. Mm. Um, because, again, you can make an aesthetically good-looking product, but maybe all, all the joinery that you're using, if you're a furniture maker or as, as a knife maker, maybe all the intrinsic parts of what you're doing are all wrong, but it all looks nice. Um, yeah. and, and you can just hide it. Yeah. And I guess you've just just going through a lot of the details on your website, you've come from a cooking background. You really enjoy cooking. So you've got that. Well, it sounds like it anyway. So you've got that. You know what you want as someone who enjoys cooking. You want some you want X, Y, Z. So you're going to have a much better understanding of what you're trying to achieve from the knife than someone like myself who was. You know, if I could take a pill and that'd be it for the day, I'd, I'd be a happy man. So you've got you're, that. You're the yeah. Soylent Green of cooking. I am. Give, <laughs> yeah. give, it, give it to me in a, in a jug and I'm happy. Just, so. just give me ground up humans. Yeah. <laughs> so you've, you're coming from a very um, experienced or you've got that, that background knowledge, which I guess is, is going to influence what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, people ask me like, oh, you know, where do designs come from or whatever? I'm like, I'm just, I, I mostly just make the knives I want to make. Um, and that's born out of how I use the product and how I engage with it. And, but, but even when I'm designing a new product, say a boning knife or a, a fish filleting knife that I'm working on at the moment, these often take more than a year to develop. Uh, and I'll, so my fish filleting knife, I'm, I sit down and I watch videos of, of people filleting fish. Just that. Just videos of people cutting up fish and how they use that knife. Because then you go, well, how they use it is like this. They, they're, they're cutting on a certain angle. They're holding the handle in a certain way. And those, the way they use it needs to influence the design. Um, I, I notice a lot, of, a lot of makers do stuff and you're like, that's aesthetically beautiful. But I can tell that that's just going to feel garbage. It's going to feel terrible. Um, and I think good design has to... It has to be something you want to engage with. Um, uh, I, I think Brian does it with his, with his chopping boards as well, the Pixel chopping boards. A chopping board is a, ultimately quite a static object. It's something that sits on your kitchen bench and doesn't, it has a weight that doesn't really move. But if it's beautiful... You kind of want to engage with it. You want to pick it up. You want to turn it over. You want to put wax on it regularly. Um, and that makes, in my mind, that makes great design. It's something, and that's where design separates differently to art. Art is something that sits on a wall uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to be pissing off a lot of people who, who are far more into art. Piss them but, off, God. Yeah, but, it, but it, it, it's this thing that exists and and for the majority of art it's not about an engagement yeah it's two-dimensional it's not necessarily tactile yes yeah yeah and it's you know like you know there are always exceptions so whatever you do don't email me send all your emails to robin (laughs) all your complaints about whatever i'm gonna say don't don't info at robinlewismakes.com yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah so one of the questions that I had going through a lot of the knives that you make, which your, fa- your website's fantastic, by the way. It's just really Thank nicely you. laid out and the, just the design is, is really great. The, the, and I can never remember this. There's a fancy word for it, the, the sides of the knife, the, the wood pieces. Um, oh, the scales. Scales, yeah. that's right. The scales that you get, the, the, um, the, the wood that you get, where do you source that from? Uh, so in the beginning, again, I was, I was just buying slabs of wood. Mm. Uh, and then cutting it up and stabilizing it myself and having to source all of this kind of stuff. Since then, you know, over the years, people have stepped into that area in a much larger way. Uh, And so these days I have a couple of dedicated suppliers, uh, a couple in Australia and a couple in the US. And all these guys do is produce wooden handles, produce the, the blocks for... For, for either wooden handles or acrylic handles or combination handles. Um, and they sell that kind of stuff. 
Uh, so in Australia, I've got a guy called Outback Timbers, and and the benefit of working with those guys versus buying a stabilized piece of wood, uh, a big um, slab of wood, is that these guys stabilize that wood for you. So stabilizing is really really important when it comes to knives because the cross section of a, a handle is so thin. Um, if if I was to do it just as a natural piece of wood, uh, even it, if it had been dried for three years. There are going to be intrinsic movement in that wood. Now, on a table, you're not going to notice that. It's too, you know, the table is so large that you're never going to notice if it moves by a millimeter. But with a uh, with a knife, that's all you're going to notice. And so, what you have to do with uh, knife handles is you've got to stabilize them. Uh, you put them into a resin bath and you vacuum out the air that's in the wood. Uh, and then when you turn off the vacuum, the resin pulls into the wood itself uh, and you use a, a heat-cured resin. And so then after that, you put it into the oven and that cures in there and that stabilizes it. All of that said, doesn't guarantee that that wood is perfectly stabilized or that it will never move, but it massively reduces any mm. movement of the wood while it's on the handle. Yeah, yeah. They're absolutely stunning, like the species of timber. I also, um, resin has had a bad name in furniture making for quite a while, mainly due to river tables. Um, but for anybody who wants to see really good use of colored resins, tinted resins, have a look at Aiden's um, Instagram. Have a look at Cutthroat's Instagram. It is absolutely stunning. You've got that, it's that Calif- California... I can't remember the full name of oh, it. Oh, yeah, the Californian Buckeye Burl that I just posted yeah. up the other day. Yeah, I mean, that it, it doesn't even look like wood. It, it, yeah. it, it's, and it's, it is such a foreign-looking material. So that's this is, this is the benefit of what stabilising does. So that wood, for a furniture maker, is garbage. Yeah. It, mm. it wouldn't hold up to a nail. Uh, it is so, so soft. You could run a nail through it. You could chip the whole thing away with your fingers. <laughs> Uh, and by stabilizing, by impregnating it with resin, uh, it still looks like wood, but it's it's as hard then as as some of the Australian hard timbers. Probably not as hard as iron bark, which is you know, mm. I, I reckon you could probably make a knife out of iron bark. <laughs> um, uh, but it, it it definitely performs really really well after that. And and California, if I if somebody was to say to me, hey, you only get to make one knife. For the rest of your life with one timber it would probably be with Californian Buckeye Burl I think it's um, it's such a special bit of wood and I know that mm. everybody's going to be like but you should be making stuff with Australian woods yeah. I don't care shut up go away send all your complaints <laughs> to Robin Lewis <laughs> <laughs> it's got this strange uh, almost wood to ivory transition which and obviously mm. ivory is a popular uh, popular knife handle and that's what I, th- I just thought was so interesting about its its colouring. It's just so unique. Yeah, it takes on uh, it takes on a lot of the um, spalting, uh, mm. um, which I always think again looks really special. There's it is one of the benefits of of, of kind of making knives because we're working on such a small area. Mm. What we get to wo- the wood that we get to work with is just top notch. Like so, the cheapest. The cheapest wood that I put on my knives is $40 per handle. Mm. Uh, I was going to ask you how expensive that resin vacuuming process is. Yeah, and the most expensive I've bought of wood is about $200. For one hand. Yeah, for one hand, like for one knife. And so you're like, kind of after labour, the handle Mm -hmm. is the most expensive part. That's a very expensive table Mm. if you're working on those Yeah, like, can you imagine doing, like, a a, a huge table where the, you know, the per square inch calculation was, like, $10 per square inch? That's crazy. Um, Now, I see you've got a, a team of people, which is quite interesting. So a lot of the people we talk to, it is just one man or, you know, last week we, we talked to COC, they were yeah. um, two, two ladies. Do you, one of, one of the, one of your team on your website is a photographer. How, how does that relationship work? I mean, that's obviously not a full-time photographer, is mm. it? 
no, so it's... This has been a really clear goal of mine from the beginning. I've always wanted to go, hey, I want to build up cutthroat knives, and I don't want it to just be me. Um, mm. There are a lot of other knife makers, um, and this is nothing against what they do, but it's, you know, Bob Kramer knives, incredible work, but they're, you know, it's... You're buying an artist's piece at that point. I wanted to build... I wanted to specifically build a brand. Uh, and so I often refer to we, even though it's me making the knives. Um, and and also it's... Ultimately, it is a team. You know, I do have a photographer who takes all my work and I find it easier to go, hey, here's the photog- photographer who does everything rather than having to tag her in every single picture. Um, and then I've got uh, the leather worker. I, at one point, I was like, I'm going to do all the leather work myself. And then very, very quickly, I was like, oh, my God, leather work is a whole new set of skills that would require a lifetime of mastery. And so instead, I brought in a leather worker and, and, and designed some stuff with her. Both of these people are, are essentially um, independent. Um, but the amount that I kind of employ them, I'm probably about a quarter of their yearly income um, for both of them. Um, it's always so interesting to find out which makers are doing outsourcing of different things and how they really um, value their time and skill set. Like that's It's fascinating. Because we tend to, especially the beginning, we all start at as a, I'm going to do everything because yeah. that's, that's, you that's have what to. you have. That's, that's all you have, exactly. Mm. And I remember Joey, when he tried to up his photography game for his website and he started paying more attention to that how you know that really improved his brand but one of the big things that they always talk about when you're making a company is you have to outsource you need a team because you cannot do everything and that's why it's so good to see that your team is doing the other bits and i think it's a real big takeaway for anyone who's trying to start their business in in what we do i am a terrible photographer i film my work and i make my furniture but i'm I suck at taking pictures of it. And I really, if I want to do this properly, I need to get a photographer like you're doing to really it's, take it to the next level. It's the same as having uh, accountants and bookkeepers as well. I did my tax the first year and, and it took me two weeks to do my tax. <laughs> One, because I kept no receipts. If the ATO is listening mm. to this... I have all the receipts, <laughs> I promise. Uh, they're somewhere. Uh, but... I like I did this and I was like if I do this for any more years than the first year at one point I'm going to get audited and I'm going to be dead as a business I, I I very quickly I was like oh my god I need to sort out this today uh and so I got uh, a bookkeeper and an accountant and they set it all up for me we can't be perfect at everything it's not possible um you know, you can be an amazing designer, but you you, you might lack uh, the f- uh, photography skills or the website building skills. And it's totally okay to outsource this kind of stuff and to go, I'm going to focus where I need to focus. Um, Sorry, did you bring a graphic designer on board as well? Or how did you end up with such such clean, um, clean uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, identity in your brand? Um, I didn't. I've, you didn't. I've always been dabbling with that kind of stuff. So, you know, if, if you think about how you get from, you know, like we're the culmination of all our previous experiences. So at high school, I, uh, I worked on the school magazine and, and through that I started to get an understanding of Adobe Illustrator and Adobe Photoshop back when they were, you know, this was a while ago that when this was, you know, Illustrator 2 and Photoshop 2. When you were um, hand cranking the machine, exactly, you know, uh, and and so it was. These were always things I kind of dabbled with, and I always liked branding, but they're also. It's a role. We're, we exist as rolling brands. It's not. I went to a branding company and go, "Hey, can you do this?" I did it, and my my brand built slowly over time, um, and you you know, so you find something that works with you. So I found a good way to take photos of my knives that's quick. 
I've, I've got a floor that works really well. I've got a floor that, uh, that adds a fair bit of texture. I put it on the floor and I can take a, I can take a photo of that really quickly. Um, but that took me a while to find that. And I was trying different things. And when you find that, you're like, okay, cool. Now I need to rejig my whole website to reflect this. So it's, it's a clear and, and considered thing. But I also did something in the beginning that I recommend to a lot of people, which is sit down and write a branding and marketing guideline for your, for your business. Uh, and so it's having that as a useful document to kind of go, okay, what are the fonts that we use on our brand? Uh, what are the fonts that we're using on our website? What is our logo fonts? What are the colors of our brand? Here are the five colors. Okay. And I went through every different element of the brand about how I want to represent myself. And even things that were kind of future stuff going, okay, when I build a workshop, what do I want that workshop to look like? And how is that workshop on brand for me for the future? And doing that, yeah, it's probably a one to two week full-time job to create that that document but it's so valuable because then when you're doing something you're not going i've got to keep this this branding in my head you're just you're jumping straight in and and um and are able to work from that from then on you go hey look i just turned to this and also if you work with somebody else if if i do a collaboration with brian for example um we can sit down and go okay he's building me a table, but I want that table to be on brand. Here's my branding document. I can give it to him and that can act as inspiration for Brian to work off something. I think it's really fascinating some of the brands that you've collaborated with as well. Um, like I remember the, was it Rooftop Honey or was it another Honey honey brand? Yeah, Rooftop Honey. Yeah, It was Rooftop Honey where you had the, the bee in the handle, a dead bee in the handle, is that right? Yeah, so... Yeah. Uh, how, I will preface did, this by you... saying the bee was the bee was dead before I got yeah. the bee. <laughs> You're not murdering bees. I had I had hate mail. People going, oh, you did not. You're killing the bees. And I'm like, <sighs> dead bees, <laughs> bees are a died. byproduct of honey production. Yeah, uh, and we we got dead bees. Yeah, um, it's you you know you have these you have these kind of visions so. The first collaboration I did was with North Street Botanical. Um, they're a florist, uh, and I've, I've I've always just kind of really found her work inspiring. And so we're like, let's let's put a flower in resin. And you do that, and you're like, well, what else can we put? What else can I do in yeah. resin? And then you see, so you're like, okay, let's do a, let's do a bee. And I, um, in my space, I was really fortunate to have access to uh, another maker who works with resin, and I was able to. S- skip a whole bunch of knowledge because I was able to talk to him. Uh, and we decided to do this. Let's go, let's put bees in, uh, in resin. But the resin that I use for knife handles, uh, is polyurethane. It's quite an expensive resin, has a really short cure time, but it reacts with moisture. And it took us six months. We were like, this will be really easy. We'll just put the bee in the resin and it'll work. And it took us six months of experimenting to, to work out a way of doing it where the bee didn't explode. Um, <laughs> wow. And we had to like study uh, taxidermy. And we were, yeah. we were like, well, maybe we have to like vacuum in ethanol into the bee and then cook off the ethanol. <laughs> Because there's, there's moist, like even a dead bee that's dried still has inherent moisture. And the polyurethane mm-hmm. resin that we're using is reacting to the moisture in the bee and it's exploding. And so <laughs> we were like, we had to vacuum in ethanol into the bee, which was displacing the water. And then we would cook off the ethanol at 80 degrees. Uh, and then as soon as it was finished cooking, it would go straight into the, the polyurethane resin which has a 15-minute cure time. And that would go first into a vacuum chamber before going into a pressure pot. Um, and so you're, you're moving ridiculously fast for a, a knife that I think we sold for, you know, 700 Like, our pricing was just so low at the time. Like, it, when I say $700 and people who are, like, going, oh, but a global knife is $100. You're like, yeah, but there was yeah. six months' worth of work to make that first... Glo- global don't have to deal with exploding bees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, like yeah. 
the R&D that went into that first one. Like, there's... I made no money on that. If you, like, if you really look at that, you're like, I made no money. It was a real passion piece. Exactly. Yeah. I think the first piece that I saw of yours was when I, when I, I met you at the Melbourne Design Awards, when you won the, yeah. the, the gold for um, Blood Money, was it? Yeah. With the um, dollar bills. With, I, yeah, I don't get to claim that one. That was... Uh, there was a maker in the States called Workerman, uh, W-K-R-M-N. Um, he's amazing. He's a really, really fantastic knife maker, uh, slash just maker. He makes a whole bunch of different things and he does, he makes resin blocks of blood money. And I saw that I'm like, I'm like, brilliant, such a cool thing. And then, so I bought a whole bunch of that. Uh, and, uh, that's actually when I had a, uh, an employee, uh, res, um, and so Rez had been working with me for a year. And after that year, I was like, look, you know, you've been working, you've been producing for a year. You get to make your own limited edition now and you can do whatever you want and I'll facilitate that. Um, and so he, uh, I don't get to claim that one, but it's, he was like, I'm going to use that stack of blood money blocks that you've got sitting on your shelf. And I'm like, cool, go for it, man. Amazing. Go wild. That's what we were talking about just before the show started about, what makes you a, you know, what gives you that title of artisan? And so that, that, that knife with the, with the exploding bee, which is what it's going to be called from now until eternity, is such, is such a good example of that, where at face value, it's just a knife, but the background in it is, is so amazing. Um, it, you know, as someone who spends a lot of time on YouTube, I find myself... Uh, or, you know, as someone who makes YouTube videos, I've, I spend a lot of time on YouTube. And when I'm looking through a video that I want to watch, if I see a standard coffee table, standard chair, it's, it's, there's, there's so little value in that. I mean, in the beginning, it's fantastic. But then as you start to mature and, and get better, you start to... What I'm looking for is the guy who's, I don't know, yeah. made a chair out of feathers because the amount of work and craft in that, that's, that's what's amazing. And that's where that real skill comes in. Yeah. I like, I think I, I'm, I think it's the same. I, I want, I want to understand somebody's thought process that got them from the initial thought to the end product. Uh, and the more I understand that thought process and the development of that, the more attached I am to the object that they made at the end of it. So I know that we were talking about art before, but I actually buy a fair amount of art. I find art really inspiring. I have it on my walls. Um, and, uh, and I love people who have just really clear visions. Um, and in, in terms of makers, there are plenty of people who can make a knife, who can forge out... Uh, a, a blade and, and, and put on a, a handle on that on that thing um, but I think what what differentiates people is is people who come into this and going okay I want to make something that represents X um, and, and goes really down a pathway um, I'm, I've just gone blank on the ones that I was trying to think about that would be really good examples uh, of, uh, of that um, but there's uh, a jewellery maker that I follow, a jeweller. That's a better way of framing that. Uh, a jeweller um, called uh, Black Braille Atelier. Uh, her name's Indigo. And she just does these beautiful rings. And, and they're not like anything I've ever seen before. They're kind of, kind of raw quartz and then folded uh, silver into like roses around that kind of stuff. They're just... They're just stunning. And you know, it's that thing where you, you look at it and you're like, I know that there's thought that has gone into this. It's not just, mm -hmm. hey, I'm going to put on legs and it's a love of the building process. It's a love of the thought that goes into that, that moment before that the first thing is even put together. Can I ask you from a from a novice perspective and like, I love knives. I love the aesthetic of them. Um, can you explain the fetishization of Japanese knife making? Oh, this is... What is... what is it that they have one particular process that the rest of the world was sort of slow to catch up on? Is it the way they make their steel? Is it 
I'm going to say some looks. things that are going to put some people really offside. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. You heard it, Jeff, first, folks. <laughs> I, okay. Japan is making some of the best factory-made knives in the world. I don't understand the fetishization of Japanese knives. I find it a bit gross. Um, there's a term in Japanese called niputaku, which means it's a, a white person who's more into Japanese culture than Japanese people. Um, <laughs> and I think there's an element of that. Cause, Is that Avril Lavigne, no? Yeah, well, like, I, yeah. I think there's, you know, at every market I go to, one person will come up to me and lecture me about how Japanese knives are the best in the world. And you're like, maybe, like, probably not. If you're talking about swords, for example, everybody goes, oh, the katana, it's this, you know, beautifully well-made sword. You talk to professional sword makers, and professional sword makers are expert historians as well. They will know everything about the history of sword making as a craft, uh, so I, I spoke to a guy called Kevin Cashin, who's one of the best sword makers in the world. He's, he's literally made swords for countries. So countries will go to him. The, uh, the King of Jordan went to him and was like, I want two kurikuris made for the country of Jordan. And he made those. Uh, wow. And, and the reality is that European swords will perform as good, if not better, than those, uh, than the Japanese swords of the same, of the same period. It wasn't like when the end of the, uh, when the beginning of the Meiji restoration happened, when Japan opened up to Europe, that Europeans went over there and bought swords to go, oh, we can learn so much about steel and knife making from this. They bought them as, you know, as beautiful pieces, but they weren't like, Oh God, they're they're so much more advanced than what we're producing. They've been doing it this way. Why didn't we think of this? Yeah, yeah. like it's it's just bonkers. It's the same thing that happens with like Damascus. Everybody comes up and they're like, "Oh, is this folded steel?" Like, if folded steel was vastly superior to everything else, we would literally make everything out of it. We've got the technology yeah. to make yeah. everything out of Damascus. Like, you know, if 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 Damascus was this wonder, wonder kid that everybody kind of presents it to be, you know, we would just make everything out of that thing. <laughs> but, but if you want to... Give, s- give, give, people, give people a quick rundown on exactly what Damascus okay, so, is. Like, uh, in a nutshell, your 30-second pitch. Oh, it's, again, I'm just, I know that there's going to be a knife-making boffin uh, who's just going <laughs> to lose their brains about all this. Anger them, that's fine. <laughs> uh, but... Yeah. Uh, Modern Damascus um, is uh, patterned steel, so you'd get two different types of steel. So often it's uh, a steel called 1075, another steel called 15N20, um, that have got slightly different uh, content. So 15N20 has a little bit more of nickel, and you layer them up. Um, so you do 1075, 15N20, 1075, 15N20. Uh, you layer them up, stack them, weld them together, and then compress them under heat. Uh, and how, that actually how thin forge- are those layers? Uh, if I'm doing it, you know, one to two mil each. Um, so you make, you know, like a stack of say 30, um, you heat it up and then compress it down either with a hammer or with a, uh, a forge press or a power hammer, and then draw that out. And, and through heat and through pressure, you actually forge those, you weld those, uh, st- that steel together. Uh, and then you can either layer it again, but the way you twist and contort that steel is going to bring out a pattern uh, in the steel itself because those two steels look slightly different. And then you, if you dip it in acid or if you put it into coffee, the, the pattern's going to become more observable. And so when you look at Damascus, you're seeing two different steels that have been welded, pattern welded together or forge welded together. Um, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good summary. So yep. that's yeah. Yep. So that's that's modern Damascus. People are going to say, "Oh, but we've lost the true techniques to the to time." And I'd say, "You're wrong." Uh, look at Woots. Look at Bouillot steel. There, like, there's a whole history behind all of this kind of stuff. Um, uh, 
But if Damascus it was so superior, what we would actually see is there are in in the states getting bigger um, cutting competitions where people make knives and they've got to go through essentially an obstacle course. You've probably seen some videos online of YouTube of this kind of stuff where they, they have to cut through a two by four in a certain amount of time, and then they've got to cut through a rope and then they've got to cut. So there's a whole bunch of different things that they've got to do to a knife in a, in a period of time as fast as possible. And so you're getting measured both on accuracy, but also on speed. And that those competitions are dominated by mono steels. So not by Damascus, not by pattern welded steels where it would be two different types of steels mono steels where it's one type uh they're absolutely dominated by mono steels which says something that the steels that humans are producing today are the best steels that humans have ever produced um bar none uh and i yeah so i'm i'm a bit more modern about this stuff i still make i make some damascus i also buy some damascus from different companies um and, uh, but, but ultimately it's an aesthetic that you're buying with these kind of things. And that's really the truth with, that's the truth with, with knives and it's the truth with furniture as well. It's the truth with all kind of stuff we make. At the end of the day, since all knives cut food, what makes one knife better than another? And at a certain price point, it just doesn't matter. It, they're all going to cut to a level that you're going to find it pretty hard to differentiate as the average user between one knife and another knife. And so then at that point, what makes one knife better than another knife or one piece of furniture better than another piece of furniture is the story behind it. Mm. If that knife makes you feel better, makes you enjoy cooking more, makes you want to be in the kitchen, it is a much better knife. Now, maybe that's my knife. Maybe that's the B knife that has some kind of connection to you if you... Uh, if you're uh, an apiarist, or maybe it's a piece of crap knife that your grandfather had for his whole life, uh, an old sabatier that's jagged, that needs a good sharpen, but the history of that knife means more to you than anything else. I think as makers, we need to be making things that become heirlooms, that take on emotional meaning for people. Uh, that that really should be our goal is going. And that's also the most sustainable thing we can do, you know, as makers. We can go, hey, here's this thing, and I'm producing it, hopefully that you hand it on to your grandkids. I think that's a really, really, it's yeah. a really tight idea that all makers it's need to It's a beautiful way of phrasing it because, yeah, at, as you say, at that price point, it's all grade A. It doesn't get grade A from there. Yeah, that's, mm. that's amazing. So, in terms of um, cutthroat knives, what is the the next step? Is there a, a a bright, interesting future ahead? What do you have in mind? This year, it's it's just survive survive COVID nineteen. <laughs> survive making. Now I feel bad for asking the question. <laughs> yeah, it's you know I I worked I've worked uh, over the last five years to get it to where it was. And I'd, I definitely had hiccups, you know, a couple of years ago, I nearly ran the whole business under, we weren't charging enough. I had, I had two knife makers, uh, working under me and, and it was just, I nearly, I nearly killed myself, um, uh, running that business. Um, but it's, it's kind of managed to survive all of that. Um, so this year it's about, it's about getting through, you know, I think as soon as COVID started, a, a, a good way to think about it was going, okay, I just need to redefine what my definition of success is. You know, I, you know, I had this definition of going, I'm going to sell this many knives. I'm going to run this many classes. I'm going to move into my new space, X, 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 X. And all of that went out the window. Uh, and my definition of success to this year was get through it come out on the other side. Um, but in terms of overall goals for what I would love to do, I would love to get the business to a point where I've got a full product offering. At the moment, it's it's knives and a little bit of leather and every so often we do, every couple of years, we do chopping boards. Um, I would love those to be permanent uh, products in, in our range, as well as a number of cheaper products. I've been, we've got a magnetic knife board that I've been working on for a number of years. Um, but each of these things takes time to make, you know, like it's, mm. 
it, it costs you $3,000 to make the first magnetic knife board. You know, every other one after that doesn't cost you that much. But the first <laughs> one costs you thousands and thousands of dollars. And then all you're trying to do is recuperate the money from that first one. Um, so I would love to have a flushed out offering, uh, a full product offering. And I really, I know that people go to the website and, and at the moment I'm sold out until next year for our knives and, and for the custom work. Um, I would love to be able to have a couple more products on the website that people can go to and, and buy straight away because I, I don't like it that they go to my website and they're disappointed um, because our classes book out almost instantly and knives go really, really quickly. Um, and yeah, I could easily just push up the price, but I, I want this stuff to still be accessible to people. I need to make a living from this, but I still want people to be able to go, hey, I can buy this. Um, it's that mixture of thing that in, like, as opposed to having constant stock levels and somebody can just go and click and buy and it arrives the next day. I kind of find the same thing with my furniture because I don't really keep stock and I make pieces to order. Somebody will go and ask, you know, I want to buy this. And I said, right, okay, do you want any changes made to it? And just by saying you want changes to it, they attach to that product so much more, even if it's just changing a dimension or changing a timber species. But it just gives them their story in the piece. Well, it's the and proven that that is... that people react to things better, even if they have a small choice in it. So if, if, you, if you're buying a car and you're like, I'm going to buy the... I'll get the black one versus the white one, having that choice is going to give you... is going to make you more connected to that end product. Um, and, yeah, you, you're trying to find this balance of going, here, you know, here's this thing, but also I know that there's this whole market of people that I'm never I'm never tapping into and that market are the people who are never going to wait on a waiting list for a knife they want to be able to go to a website and they want to buy your knife and if they can't buy it they're going to go somewhere else and and I'm constantly missing out on that I have you know a couple thousand people go to my website every week I don't have a couple thousand sales every week you know <laughs> Um, I think we were talking about it before about the idea of maybe having sub brands and sort of mm. something by cutthroat and yeah. differentiating between your full on bespoke knives and then something that is easily accessible to people to order. I think it's really interesting. I've been thinking about how I can bring that into my business. So it's a it's an interesting conversation for people to have. Mm. Yeah, and it's but also how do you do that and stay true? To what you and just not are. pump out crap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, to Ikea. I th- yeah. exactly. Yeah. Like I think, I think there's something there, and I think there is a balance that can be struck. Um, uh, I think if you keep it in house, um, and and maybe you go, hey, look, the the materials are slightly different, or the fit and finish is slightly different, or whatever. There are there are ways of adding in essentially sub-brands, but also you want that thing of going, it, it is still a cutthroat knives product uh, and that and that still has to mean something. Um, you know, you, you see it a lot with like chefs who obviously get sponsored by, uh, they get sponsored by, you know, ScanPan or whatever. And, and so they're, they're now hawking fry pans and you're like okay you own a michelin star restaurant and you're now hawking garbage <laughs> pans and i'm not saying scan pan are garbage pans but <laughs> scan pans yeah. lawyers will be in touch i oh, know yeah it's just send all your complaints to robin lewis um <laughs> this is our last guest brian yeah, i'm tired it's... of this abuse <laughs> <laughs> Can you maybe just, um, I know there's so many makers out there from different, um, like different furniture makers and jewelry makers that are interested in knife making and the fact that you've gone from learning from somebody else to now teaching it. Can you just tell us a little bit about your classes? I know they book out very quickly, but what sort of pricing they are, how many classes it involves to make and to make one knife. So, uh, we generally do two classes a month. Um, at the moment it's, uh, 
this because of the year we had to cancel so many classes or at least postpone so many classes so we've got a, a lot of filling up to do um but it's uh $980 for two days and during that two days you make and design two kitchen knives from start to finish um I I did a cup because I did a couple of classes and, and learned with some people before this um I've also got a background in adult education, so I've taught at universities. Uh, and so I wanted to go, I wanted people walking out of this class going, I made this product. Because I definitely did some classes with some other people where you're like, that was fun watching that guy make that product. Um, now, that's not to say that that's a bad way of learning. At a certain level of, of pr- proficiency, you learn way better watching somebody else make something. Um, I, these days when I go and train with people, I want to go and watch them make that product and I want to watch how their body moves or whatever. I'm looking for very certain things. But when you're first starting out, uh, in our two day course, you come in, spend the first hour designing your two knives. And then from start to finish, we heat treat the knives. We learn about good heat treatment. We grind the knives, uh, hand sand them glue on the handles and then shape the handles. And the only part that I really touch in those two days is I sharpen the knives for them at the very end. Awesome. I'm in. I'll get, I'll put in for 2021. (laughs) Yeah. So like, I I feel really bad at the moment because people like, when can I book it? I'm like, I have 15 people who I owe classes to. Yeah. Uh, There's a bit of a pandemic thing going around right now. That is. Oh, I had a I had somebody contact me. He's like, "Oh, when are you bringing out some cheaper products?" I'm like, "Dude, there is a worldwide pandemic. I am focused <laughs> on like the things that guarantee give yeah. me income right now yeah. because I've had such a hit to my income." Yeah. All right, so we're going to leave it there. We've done a good good episode here. So, Aiden, just before we leave off, where can people find your your stuff? Uh, sure. Um, you can find me at www.cutthroatknives.com.au or on Instagram at Cutthroat Australia. Um, Facebook, don't. Facebook's the worst. Yeah. I keep it just for <laughs> SEO. Yeah. Um, yeah. But literally, if I get a message through Facebook, I will groan. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, as I said in the beginning of the episode, um, your Instagram feed is—it's polished. It just—it looks so good. Um, so yeah, from from my perspective, I'd recommend anyone go check out that that Instagram page, even if you just want to see what an Instagram page should look like. It's it's a it's a good old it's a good old look. All right, so to everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please go ahead and give it a rating on iTunes. That really helps us out. The Shopstall Podcast is available on iTunes and most other podcast apps. My name is Robin Lewis. Brian, thanks for hanging out today. Aiden, thank you once again for sharing your story. Very interesting. And um, we've got a number of quotes that I can see I'm going to be using to uh, title this podcast. Now I've just got to pick the one that works best. Not uh, the one about Scanpan. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much, Aiden, for coming on. It's brilliant. Hey, thanks brilliant so much, guys. So take care, everyone, and we'll see you in the next show. See ya.